you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to, you know where? We're almost done with Romans 12, 1 and 2. A couple more weeks. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, what an awesome God you are. Lord, we thank you that you're a God who tracks us down. You are indeed the hound of heaven. You search us out in the dark places of our lives and, and bring light, the light of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you might bring light this morning to your Word. That we might learn how to discern your will in our lives and what that means. And we pray that you give us wisdom as we study your Word and hear from it. In Christ's name, Amen. Over the years as a pastor, I've had lots of people ask me, how do I know what the Word of God, what the will of God is? How do I discern the will of God? And the purpose of Paul's phrase in Romans 12, 2, the purpose of his teaching is to teach us what the will of God is. How to approve the will of God. Paul has spent 11 chapters laying down the theological groundwork for practical Christian living. I think that's one thing that we really need to comprehend that he spent 11 chapters telling us about who God is, what God expects of us, about who we are, and all the theological foundation so that he can give to us now in these final few chapters the practical wisdom for practical Christian living. And Paul starts out these two verses by urging us, therefore, because of all that's gone before, urging us to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. To present ourselves as sacrifices acceptable or well-pleasing to God. And then Paul gives us two commands. The first is a negative. Do not be conformed to this present age, to this secular age, this world. You and I are tempted every moment of every day to be like the world. If you turn on the television at all, you are bombarded by advertisements telling you that you need to be more beautiful, that you need to use this toothpaste, that you need to dress this way, that you need to drink this, that you need to do that. You need to be like the world over and over and over again to are bombarded with this. And Paul says, don't fall for that trap. Don't be conformed to the world. The second command he gives is positive. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I told some of you this story before. A professor of mine, Jay Adams, uh, written over 50 books. He started the Nuthetic Counseling Movement. And uh, I was uh, like a co-pastor at a a small denominational church near Escondido when I was in seminary. And uh, I normally set up the first couple of rows um, during the service when the other pastor was preaching. And Jay Adams came to preach one day. And I was sitting way toward the back of the auditorium. One of the deacons came by and he goes, what are you doing sitting back here? Just wait. <laughs> Jay Adams has this incredible 
booming voice. He doesn't need a microphone at all. After the service hit, Deacon came by and said, Now I understand. But Jay Adams preached on this passage. And he talked about transforming your mind. And he said the, really, the, the idea of the word there is really train your mind. Pretend your mind is a dog. And you're training it to sit. Sit. Stay. What, oh, stay. And so over and over and over again, we need to transform or teach our mind that. Over and over and over again, I tell people, look for the little words in Scripture. They're really, really important. That is a purpose word. Don't be transformed. Don't be conformed, but be transformed that you may prove what the will of God is. Wow. That's an incredible thing when you think about it. How in the world, Paul, can we discern? How can we prove what the will of God? What does that mean anyway? Well, the definition of the word that we translate prove or discern, the Greek word actually means to test or approve. We Word studies in the Greek New Testament state, prove is to put to the test for the purpose of approving and finding that the thing tested meets the specifications laid down to put one's approval on it. As I was uh, reading that, uh, 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 an illustration came to mind when I was in the Navy. I was on the John C. Calhoun and we were going through a long overhaul in Mare Island and, uh, getting a new nuclear reactor refueled and getting a new sonar suite. And I was a, a chief sonarman at the time and so I was responsible for making sure that the sonar installation went well. And I went down and the, the, those submarines had this big, huge wraparound uh, sonar array of hydrophones. It's actually built into trays in the bow and then sheets of metal are welded over these trays. It's a permanent installation. It's a long-range, low-frequency sonar. And I was mopping down in the dry dock one day and checking out how they were doing. They were bolting all these hydrophones on. And fortunately, it had been raining for the last several days. And I looked and I see this brown stuff running off the bolts. Rust. I'm like, Wait a minute. These are supposed to be stainless steel. They weld these plates on and we get out in the ocean and that salt water gets to it. Those bolts are going to go away and these hydrophones are going to be dangling there going bang, 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 bang. And not only can we not hear anything, but it will let everybody else know where we are. And so I called the worker over and I said, uh, you know, excuse me, but these are supposed to be stainless steel boats. Oh, they are. We've got the paperwork on them. They're certified, mill spec. I, well, you know, that really looks like rust to me. Oh, no. So I go up to the, the uh, shop where the, the lead man was. And I said, you know, we, I think we've got a problem now. Oh, no, those are mill spec. Here's the paperwork on them. And, and, and here's some more of them right here. Well, you know, gosh, they really look like they're, they're rusting to me. And one of the other workers said, well, i got a magnet in my pocket. So he picked up a handful of these bolts. Stainless steel is not magnetic, for those of you who are not aware. And he goes, plunk. And the bolts just kind of leaped up to the magnet. So the point is that even though the paperwork said that those were stainless steel, top grade, they were not. And fortunately, I had gone down and seen the rust. They were not 
approved, believe me, and they had to take all the bolts back out and get the right stuff and, and put it in. But that's not the sense of the word that Paul uses. John Murray writes in his commentary, to prove, in this instance, is not to test so as to find out whether the will of God is good or bad. It is not to examine. It is to approve, to discover, to find out or learn by experience what the will of God is and therefore to learn how approved the will of God is. You see, we need to test God's will by experience. The question was asked in Sunday school this morning. Well, what about the bad things that happen in the world? Does God cause those to happen? The answer is yes. Romans 8.28 in the Greek says, God causes all things to happen for good for those that love Him and are called according to His purpose. It might be bad from our perspective. But God is using even the wicked, evil acts of people in the world for His purposes. I often ask the question, what is the most wicked act in all of history? And of course, the answer is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And yet, God used that most wicked of all acts so that you and I could be saved from our sins and stand before Him dressed in the very righteous robes of Christ Himself. We must not put ourselves in the position of judging whether or not God's will is good. Many of us do that in the world. Well, God must be a bad God if He allows that to happen. How could a good God allow six million Jews to be annihilated? How could a good God allow my son to have epilepsy? How could a good God allow my wife to be killed in an automobile accident? You see, we put ourselves above God, judging Him. And what we need to understand is that God is holy, holy, holy. God is perfectly holy, perfectly good. God is incapable of doing something that is bad. Because God is perfectly good, His will is always perfectly good. And we must discover by experience that the will of God is good. We may not understand that when we're going through the throes of what happened. Look at the life of Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers and lived 17 years as a slave. At least the last two years of that 17 years in captivity in, a, in an Egyptian prison, not knowing from one day to the next whether he was going to be executed. And I don't know about you, but if I was living my life under those circumstances, I'd probably be questioning whether or not God was good too. But Joseph never did. And at the end of Genesis, when his, when his father dies and his brothers come begging for their lives to him, he says, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. Joseph understood that even though he was going through a terrible trial, even though it was a disaster in his life, God meant it for good. And that's what you and I need to hang on to. In John 7, verses 14 through 18, it says, But when it was now the midst of the feast, 
Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews, therefore, were marveling, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? Jesus, therefore, answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. You see, if you and I are willing to do what God commands us to do, we will discern, we will learn to approve that the will of God is good. In the Old Testament, the high priest had a little bit different method. There was a, a thing called an urim, U-R-I-M, and a thummim, T-H-U-M-M-I-N. And we don't know exactly what they were, but the high priest wore this breastplate. It was a folded piece of cloth, and on the outside it had twelve jewels representing the twelve tribes of Israel. And inside, in the, in the pocket, were the urim and the thummim. And apparently what would happen is the high priest would ask a question of God. And he would pull out at least one of these and it would indicate to him a yes or a no answer. And that's the way he determined the, the will of God. H.A. Ironside told a story of a young curate in the, the Church of England who was greatly helped in his understanding of the Scriptures by frequent conversations with an uneducated cobbler who was nevertheless well acquainted with the Word of God. On one occasion when a friend of his, a young theologian, was visiting him, he mentioned this remarkable knowledge of the Bible which the cobbler possessed. The young theologian, in a spirit of pride, expressed a desire to meet the cobbler, saying he felt sure he could ask some questions which the cobbler would be quite unable to answer. Upon being introduced to the man in his little shop, the question was put by the theologian, can you tell me what the Urim and the Thummim were? The cobbler replied, I don't know exactly. I understand that the words apply to something that was on the breastplate of the high priest. I know the words mean lights and perfections. And that though the Urim and the Thummim, the high, through the Urim and the Thummim, the high priest were able to discern the mind of the Lord. But I find that I can get the mind of the Lord by just changing two letters. I take this blessed book, the Bible, and by using and thumbing, I get the mind of the Lord that way. We discover by using and thumbing through His Word, the Bible, by doing what His Word commands, that His will is perfectly good in every way. I read years ago that a Bible that's falling apart is usually carried by someone who is not. Because they've been using and thumbing it a lot to find out what God's will for them is. If we're willing, having been transformed by the renewing of our minds, to do the will of God, we shall understand the word of Jesus Christ, His teaching. We'll know that He is true and therefore is in fact God's word. But what does the Scripture mean exactly by the will of God? Well, the definition of the word that we translate will can mean desire, pleasure, 
will. Therefore, what Paul is teaching is that we are to be transformed for the purpose of, by the renewing of our minds, for the purpose of discerning or approving the desire or the good pleasure or the will of God. Notice, we must have our minds renewed in order to approve the will of God. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22-25 through 25 says, For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the call, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Years ago, I was into psychology and all kinds of Eastern stuff, philosophy. And I read a little book called by a philosopher. He was actually a longshoreman in San Francisco. A guy by the name of Eric Hopper. He wrote a book called The True Believer. And it was really interesting. And I went through and I then I marked it all up. And I mean, all this stuff was just, it was awesome. It was profound. It was amazing stuff to me. And years later, I became a Christian. And I was going through my stuff one day, several years after I became a Christian, and I found Eric Hopper's little book, The True Believer. And so I decided to read it again. And it was really amazing how stupid I was. I could not believe I'd made these kinds of comments. But you see, the wisdom of man is That's what you and I need to grab hold of. That's what Paul is teaching us. That's what the Word teaches us. To the unbeliever, faith in God is a leap in the dark of someone who feels powerless to find his way in the world. It is foolishness to trust in something that we cannot prove, of which we cannot prove the existence. One of my college classes was a a class in public speaking. I was not a Christian at the time. And I spoke on Christianity as a crutch. Because I was absolutely convinced that I didn't need Christianity. I could do things on my own. If I was strong enough in my will, in my intellect, in my study, in my perseverance, I could do anything I wanted to do. And it was only a weak person who would make that incredible leap in the dark and latch on to something they couldn't prove the existence of. We cannot prove the existence of God, but we must understand that His Word is true. That His will is good. And that by submitting to that will and doing that will and experiencing His will, we can approve what His will is. But simply knowing God's good pleasure is not all that's intended here. Robert Candlish, a 
wrote on this passage, the believer's transformation by the renewing of his mind is not the ultimate end which the Holy Spirit seeks in his regenerating and renovating work. It is the immediate and primary design of that work, in one sense. We are created anew in Christ Jesus. That new creation is what the Holy Spirit first aims at and affects. But we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 The essence of a good work is the doing of the will of God. The proving of the will of God, therefore, is a fitting sequel of our being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Approving the will of God is to do the good work which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, that's what we need to understand. Is that God simply didn't create us to go, Oh, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I love it. God created us that we might do the good work which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The way we approve the will of God is to do what His Word commands. How do we know what those good works are? James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary quotes Gary Friesen, who was a professor at Multnomah School of the Bible, and J. Robin Maxson, a pastor from Klamath, Oregon. They wrote a book, Decision Making in the Will of God. And in that book, they distinguish between three meanings of the will of God. First is God's sovereign will, which is hidden and not revealed to us except as it unfolds in, in history. The second is God's moral will, which is revealed in Scripture. And the third is God's specific will for individuals. Well, first, God's sovereign will. We cannot know what the sovereign will of God is except as it's revealed in history. You see, we can't look into the future. We don't know what's going to happen five minutes from now. God knows all things from the beginning of time to the end of time and He knows them all at the same time. Was it God's will that you were born on your birth date in history? Yeah, absolutely. I see even one of the little ones shaking their head yes. Did your parents know that this would happen a year before you were born? Not a clue. Whatever has already happened has happened according to God's will. Nothing is a surprise to God. God doesn't go, oh, what, what happened there? Oh, i got to fix this. God knows all things from the beginning to the end and He knows them all at once. Your actions will not surprise God. And if something has already occurred, there's no sense in getting upset about it. Oh, was I in the will of God? Did I do the bad thing? It's already happened according to the will of God. Learn from it and go on from there. Don't be anxious. God's moral will. God's moral will is what is revealed to us in Scripture. It's what's written in this book. It's the commands... 
His moral will are all the commands that He has given to us in Scripture that we should learn them and live by them and do them. And His moral will is summed up by Jesus in Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it, or just exactly like it is, is, is the idea there. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. You know, what you and I need to understand is that if we love everyone else in the same way that we already love ourselves, we're going to be treating others pretty good, aren't we? We don't do things to treat ourselves bad. We don't do things that make ourselves angry. We don't do things that cause ourselves discomfort very much. And so what we need to understand is we need to treat others as they, as if we were treating ourselves that way. God's specific will for individuals. That's what we usually think of when people are saying that they're searching for or trying to find out what is God's will. So practically, how do I discern or know God's will or prove God's will? Well, how can you know what job God wants you to take? How do you know whether God wants you to buy that new house or that new car? If you're single, how do you know if your new friend is the one that God would have you to marry? Well, I have some simplistic answers. Just a few. They're simplistic, but they're true. First, you must be in God's Word. You must read it. You must study it on a regular basis. How in the world do you expect to know what God is commanding you in His Word if you've never read it? I remember years ago when I was a pastor in Bakersfield. I'd been doing all of the, the finances. We were a small church and nobody volunteered to be the treasurer. And so I set it all up in Quicken and every month it balanced to the penny and I reported to the session and everything was rolling along smoothly and one of my elders' wives decided, and she came to me and she said, you know, it's really a bad thing for the pastor to be doing the finances. I said, I'll, I'll take it over. Hey, praise the Lord. <laughs> here it is. You know, here's, here's the books. Here's the, here's the data. Set it all up on her computer. About two weeks later, she called me up and she said, can you come over here? i got a problem. And I went over and it was a disaster. I mean, nothing matched. And she said, can you tell me how to do this? And I said, well, what did you do? And she said, da 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 And I said, well, that's not what's in the book. Well, I, you know, I don't want to read the book. Can you just tell me what to do? We're a lot like that, aren't we? We don't want to read the book. We want somebody to tell us what the book says. 
But you've got to read the instruction manual, folks. A computer program will not work if you don't read the, read the book. Your life will not work unless you read the book. God's moral wheel is revealed in Scripture. You must read it to find out what God commands of you. And you must do nothing contrary to His moral will. Is a new job causing you to sin in some way? Don't take it. Is the new house or the new car causing you to sin by overextending yourself on your budget so that you have to reduce your giving to God's causes? Don't take it. Is your new friend not a Christian believer? Don't get married. God says don't do that. Second, you should be in prayer. Not down on your knees necessarily all the time. That's not what God means by prayer, but live your lives in an attitude of prayer. You know, our, our idea of folding the hands and, and, and bowing the head is fine because it demonstrates that we're in submission to God. But are you aware that that didn't happen until like the third or fourth century after Christ? That's a Saxon thing. The Jews used to pray standing up with their hands out raised and their eyes wide open. You can pray driving down the freeway. Just don't do it in a Saxon way. And, and oh, by the way, don't do it in a Jewish way either. Keep your hands on the wheel. But you can live your life in an attitude of prayer. You should ask God for wisdom and expect that it will be granted. James 1, 5-8 says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man unstable in all his ways. Ask God for wisdom and He will grant that to you. Ask Him believing and He will guide you in His will. Third, you should ask for counsel from Christian friends. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, Where there is no guidance, the people fall. But in abundance of counselors, there is victory. Making decisions on your own is dangerous and foolish even when you are absolutely certain in your heart that it is God's will for you. Some of you have heard the story before, but when I was a pastor in Bakersfield, we had a young man from a Baptist background come to the church. And he desperately wanted to be a pastor. He had tried to plant two churches and both of them had failed. And he and his family started coming to the church and he wanted to teach Sunday school. And I said, well, you know, there's a, there's a problem because you don't believe in infant baptism and I don't want you put in a teaching position because I don't want you put in a position of having to defend something that you don't, in which you don't believe. So I tell you what, I'll study baptism from your point of view if you'll study baptism from an infant baptism point of view. 
He said, okay. I did. He didn't. Um, I learned a lot about baptism. But he ultimately left the church because we wouldn't allow him to teach. He wanted to get into our, our ministry program and be uh, uh, on the road becoming a pastor. He left the church and tried to start another church. Guess what happened? It bombed. You see, he had the internal call. He was absolutely convinced in his heart that God wanted him to be a pastor. But he didn't have the wisdom of other counselors who were telling him, you don't have the skills. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? You see, you and I need the input of fellow believers counseling us, telling us, you know what? That's a really stupid idea. <laughs> I don't want to kill myself to do it that way. You know what? God's Word says you shouldn't be doing this. Or, you don't really have the skills to do this particular job. We need to listen to the input of others. Finally, if you are certain that what you want to do is not contrary to God's revealed will in Scripture. If you have prayed and asked God for wisdom in your decision, if you have sought the counsel of Christian friends and they agree with your proposed decision, then, in the words of Nike, just do it! There are a lot of things that we can do that are okay with God. If I leave this church after the sermon this morning and I go down to the, to the first traffic light down here, I can turn left to go home or I can go straight and turn left later on and go home. Which does God want me to do? Well, I could sit there at the traffic light going, oh Lord, what, what do I want to do? Tell me, Lord, what am I going to do? People are going to be behind me going, get out of the way. Move it! Just do it if it's not contrary to God's will. There are many paths to get to your home. And whatever you choose is according to God's will. But you can't choose to do something contrary to the Scripture. If it turns out differently than you expected, if I turn to the left and go to the next traffic light and turn to the right on the highway and somebody creams my car, God is not punishing you for making the wrong decision. Number one, God doesn't punish Christians. Romans 8, 1 says, Therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God punished Jesus Christ for all of our sins. God doesn't punish you for making the wrong decision. But God does teach you through circumstances. And what we need to do when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances is ask ourselves, what is God teaching me in this circumstance? I just chose to quit my job and get another job. And find out I got a terrible boss and I'm working uh, 50, 60, 70 hours a week and, and, and I got a terrible commute and, 
And oh Lord, what is the Lord trying to teach me here? I don't know. But you can sure look around and ask God for wisdom. Maybe He's putting you in a circumstance that will teach you something that you can use later on. We were talking in the men's study and to a couple of people this week. And most of you don't know much about my background. I was married before. My first wife was very ill and died at age 39 of a hereditary disease. And she had terrible mental problems. And we went through a lot of stuff in 17 years. We tried to commit suicide twice in front of the kids. She would sit in the bed and scream, murderer, murderer, murderer. And my kids would go into the bedroom, Mommy, what's wrong? Daddy's trying to kill me. I was not a Christian at the time. One of my sons has a complex seizure disorder and all kinds of mental problems. He's been in a lockup in California since he was like 12 or 13. I was not a Christian when I was going through all that. But I look back now and I, I realize that God was putting me in those positions and teaching me so that I can relate to people now who are in those kinds of circumstances. Romans 8.28 And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. You may be like Joseph in the depths of the pit, not knowing from one day to the next what God is doing in your life, but know this, God is in charge and God loves you and God is controlling the circumstances of your life and all you got to do is hang on to Him. So, beloved, I urge you, like the Apostle Paul, do not be conformed to this secular world. Be different. Stand out in a crowd. Let yourselves be transformed by the power of the Spirit of God. By the renewing of your mind so that you may approve. You may understand that the will of God is good and that all the things that He's doing in your life are good. Because they are